Ahoy! It's your boy. Today is Sunday, August 17th, and I just finished a conversation with a friend, which um, I don't know if it'll carry us through this whole entry here, but it sort of relates to something I was talking about last time, which is I was sort of lamenting, and I've continued to think about this, but I was sort of lamenting that I had stumbled across uh, some videos about Jacob Collier, or Collier, I'm so, I don't know how to say his name, Jacob Collier is how I'll say it, Jacob Collier, and that's what I'll go with. Um, and I was sort of reflecting that I had seen this BBC documentary that was sort of uh, telling his life story, and I was sort of fuming or sort of stewing in my own juices of resentment, thinking like, oh, that should have been me or something like that. And um, But the thing that's, and, and, and that's true, but the thing that stuck with me the most was I also mentioned watching these sort of streaming videos that show him... Um, harmonizing these videos that people send him. So maybe just to recap, Jacob, what did I land on? Jacob Collier, or whatever his name is. Um, very talented musician, sort of a genius of music theory, has perfect pitch and is a multi-instrumentalist and a great orchestrator and, and just sort of a, a virtuoso of all things music related. And so people will send him these videos where they sing a melody or play, um, you know, about 15 to 30 seconds on an instrument. And he will harmonize it. And so it's just a fun way for him to, one, have this exhibition of talent, but also engage with his audience. And um, I had seen this eight-hour-long stream that he had posted around the time of the pandemic where he was raising money for his um, uh, music, uh, I guess his band and his touring crew who were now out of a job. And so he was trying to raise money to help support them. And so he did it by having this eight-hour-long stream where he harmonizes a bunch of melodies. And the thing that I really got from watching that is just how free he was in that creative process, how confidently he worked. And there was something about seeing him in that moment where I thought, that's the that's what the creative process should be. You know, my creative process, and I, I guess I'm I, you can't see this, but I'm putting creative in air quotes, because there was something about what I was seeing here that, that kind of demonstrated to me that what I thought of as creativity or what my creative process was, was actually something quite a bit different, which was, you know, mine is very laborious and I'm like looking for perfection and I'm kind of wringing myself like a bar rack and I'm just, you know, trying to get, get something perfect and, and this kind of, but whatever. I, I, yeah, I'm a perfectionist. And what I was seeing in this moment was this artist is, and as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that my fan is on. So let me reach out. Let me reach over and turn that off. One second. Not that it would <clears throat> sabotage everything, but it would mean there was a unnecessary hum going on in the background. So what I was noticing with that was that he was just operating very freely, and and God forbid, it looked like he was having fun while he was doing this. And so, you know, I was, you know, kind of feeling bad, not only because. I feel like, gosh, and my creative process is nothing like that. You know, it's kind of torturous. And no wonder it's hard for me. No wonder it's hard for me to come back to because I actually don't enjoy it that much. Um, but here was somebody who was not only exponentially more talented than I am, but was also have, having a hell of a lot more fun. And the only time I had ever had a taste of that is when I was working with my producer, Gowan Matthews, um, who was also very adamant that we work quickly and that we kind of chase things down and that we don't let ourselves kind of get stuck marinating in indecisiveness you know that it's really the most important part is that we make decisions and that we trust our judgment and that we just kind of go where the process leads us and we don't get mired in trying to be perfect um but the reason this came back to me is because uh, i have a friend and i'm sorry if people are sick about hearing about taiwan but uh, <laughs> i'm sorry that's just going to be the recurring uh, recurring theme uh, and so I have a friend who's currently in Taiwan and will be there for the next nine months, is doing a research project. And the reason uh, I keep checking in with them is, of course, they're my friend. I'm eager to hear about their time. Um, but they're also currently, um, they're there for a research project, but at the same time, they're also studying. Um, uh, they have some language studies, and they happen to be studying at one of the places that I might be attending. And so I'm just asking them about what their experience has been. But more importantly, I was just kind of checking in with them about you know, how they're feeling in general. And uh, I guess they're dealing with some challenges, which I think is something I'm anticipating as well, which is visiting a place is one thing and enjoying your time there when you know that your time is going to be relatively short is one thing. I'm not going to say it's easy. I'm just going to say it's it's one thing while he's settling in for nine months. And so 
that process is a little different. Um, but one of the things that we were talking about is, you know, he's currently doing this major research project and he has, I don't know if he would call it an advisor or someone that he answers to, but he's basically receiving funding and the funding organization has some type of oversight that he has to check in with this person and kind of update them on their progress or pitch them ideas or whatever the case may be. And they were sort of sharing with me that it was kind of, on the one hand, a relief, but also disappointing in another sense, that when they brought their proposal and their ideas and their plans to this person, that they were almost dismissively um, uh, approving, if that makes sense. Meaning they just kind of gave them the green light and gave and said, oh, that sounds great. But there was a way in which that felt almost too easy. Uh, on the one hand, this person both didn't seem very excited about the work that they were doing, but also didn't seem to be considering it that much at all. And while that was a relief because it communicated to this person that, oh, actually, there's probably not nearly as much pressure on me from outside forces as I imagine there is, um, it also kind of made them feel like they were operating in a vacuum. And where am I going with this? Um, oh, I think the conclusion was that and this is something that I think my friend and I have both observed in our adult life, which is when you're younger, it's easy to find a lot of enthusiasm for what you do. But as we get older, really the most important thing in life is that we are excited about what we're doing. Because if we're looking for external validation or looking for other people to get excited about our undertakings and even our successes, honestly, you know, you can get that from your friends and family, hopefully, if you're lucky. But for the most part, you need to find things that you're excited about. Um, because at the end of the day, even the people who are supposed to be getting excited, you know, and I'm assuming this is could be your manager or your supervisor, it could be the person signing the checks for the research that you're doing, is as much as you want people to be invested in your successes or even your progress, at the end of the day, you're probably just a single light in a constellation of other things that they're concerned about. And, you know... Maybe not that they shouldn't or not that we would, uh, of course, we would like them to be. But at the end of the day, most people probably can't afford to be that invested. Um, and so that can be disappointing. But there's a way in which it's also liberating as well. But the important part is that if you're just going into major projects or whatever, hoping that other people will get, will get excited, not only about the progress, but the results, you can prepare to be disappointed. But the lesson then is that actually to live a worthwhile life is that you actually have to do things that you're excited about. Um, you have to be sustained by the excitement that is kind of generated during the process of what you're doing, those private moments that you don't share. Because most of what we do is we just kind of toil in private. And if we actually don't enjoy that process, um, and it doesn't mean that it's always a walk in the park or that it's always fun. But if we're not sort of lit up on a fundamental level by the work that we're doing generally, then it's just going to be very hard to sustain. And now where does this go to? Well, I was sort of saying that, um, you know, there's, um, I guess, I, I guess I'm trying to think tangentially how I got to this, but basically I related to my friends something about this documentary that I watched recently, which was rec recommended to me by a friend. It's called the Alpinist or the Alpinist. And it's a documentary about a young um, well, an alpinist or an alpinist, basically a mountain climber, for lack of a better word, um, who was known for kind of going, just doing some incredible feats. There was a, a famous documentary recently called Free Solo that a lot of us saw, and maybe a lot of a lot of you saw, about um, you know a free solo climber who did some great feat. I forget where it was, but if you've seen the documentary, you know what I'm talking about it. Well, this person was like that to the nth degree, except they were even younger. You know, they're climbing like ice faces and these crazy, um, these, yeah, these just these crazy alpine summits, you know, without a rope and just risking life and limb and just doing shit that nobody in their right mind would ever attempt. And this person was not only very young, what made them incredibly appealing to people is that for the most part, they were completely eschewing, um, um, kind of being celebrated for it, meaning, uh, or I should say one of the major points of this documentary is that you have this documentary crew who's very excited about filming this person trying to document their successes. And one of the major 
hurdles that they have is that this their subject of their documentary keeps running away from them and like not telling them where they're going. You know, they like buy him a phone and he just like takes off for, you know, South America somewhere and like doesn't take his phone and like doesn't tell them. And when they ask him about it, it's because, you know, the thrill for him is, you know, the experience he has on the mountain when he's by himself and that there's something about having the documentary film crew there that kind of taints the experience for him. And when I said this to my friend, they kind of fell into kind of a reflection and I kind of gave them a moment because I was kind of interested. Oh, by the way, we were, we were over video chat so I could kind of see them. And I noticed that they had kind of fallen into this reflection. And I gave them about 30 seconds and I just said, you know, where are your thoughts going? What are you thinking about? And they said something that really hit me kind of hard and I agreed with. But they said, you know, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about what you're saying. But I'm also kind of over successful, like success, exceptional people doing exceptional things. And I was like, okay, say more. And they were just saying, you know, when they watch those types of documentaries, that what their their overarching feeling is like shame. Uh, and that wasn't their word. I'm sort of, I'm sort of, you know, projecting that onto what they said. But they were saying, you know, when they watch documentaries like that, um, they're supposed to be inspiring, but actually it makes them feel bad about how little they're doing with their lives because... And this is true if you see this documentary, The Alpinist, and I'm actually trying to relate this to my experience of watching these videos of Jacob Collier, which is, you know, although I'm entertained and although I'm impressed by this exhibition of talent, it's actually hard for me to watch this stuff because of what I said, that feeling of like, oh, that should have been me, that should have been my story. You know, again, I have this idealized version of myself that is sort of like, you know, but for the traumas, but for the life experiences or hurdles that I've had to overcome, uh, there's this idealized version of myself, this, uh, you know, when I, I've sort of lived up to my potential, so to speak, who would be accomplishing X, Y, or Z. And I've, you know, through my grievous fault, you know, mea culpa, through my own grievous fault, I failed to kind of li live up to those standards. And here is this person uh, who's not only exponentially more talented than me, they're younger than I am, right? So they kind of, they very literally embody this type of, you know, idealized version of myself. You know, a big, a big part of what I sit with, and I think it's fair to say that my friend lives with this as well, is that we're kind of navigating, you know, we're in, we're ostensibly in chapters of our life that we should have navigated earlier, right? So, I'm knocking on the door of 40 and I'm like just now getting my undergraduate degree. You know, my friend is actually significantly further along. But at the same time, in an ideal world, they would have been navigating this chapter of their life like maybe half a decade or maybe a decade ago. I'm not sure. But so to see documentaries about young subjects who are achieving superhuman things, that's a hard thing to watch because it makes us feel bad about who we are. And I totally relate to that, right? That brought up a lot of what I talked about in my last entry here. Um, and I, so, and I'm also assuming things that, you know, many people who happen to hear this might live with as well. Um, and this may sound like an obvious point, but, you know, I guess my thought process could stop there. But one thing I said to my friend, and I was just thinking about before I fired this microphone up, is that, yes, there's a huge shame component of like watching the alpinist or this young mountain climber do these incredible human feats or watching Jacob Collier, um, you know, just be exceptional. But if I actually had to, dis and actually the alpinist is a great example because although yes, I would probably sell my soul to have Jacob Collier's talents, you know, my major takeaway isn't, oh, I wish I was doing that. It's seeing someone doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing, right? So there's a way in which actually their accomplishment is not the thing I envy. Or, you know, when we watch the documentary or the reason that the subject is so interesting is not just that they have accomplished X. It's that, or I guess the major takeaway for the viewer is that they've accomplished X because they've had the courage to live their life in such a way that they're doing the thing that makes them passionate, right? Like so much, so many of us live our lives, or it, it's strange for me and my friend to be like in our mid to late thirties, 
talking about the insight that we've arrived at of like, we've all, uh, you know, he and I both have had a number of experiences where we committed ourselves to some process that would have been externally validating if we were successful, or even something we did accomplish that should have been validating, that should have felt like success, that may have even looked like success and been celebrated by other people in our life, but we, but, but didn't make us happy. And we were disappointed to learn that this thing that was the success, this thing that was supposed to make us happy, not only didn't make us happy, the fact that it looked like success to other people and we were still unhappy actually expounded our disappointment, right? And so that was like an insight that we had to come to, um, to cease, you know, and it just seems observably true in my life, that there, for whatever reason, there seem to be young people who don't have to navigate that, you know? They just kind of chase the thing. And what I was, uh, well, maybe I'm, I'm sort of getting off track here, but just following my thoughts here, the thing I pointed out both in The Alpinist and in uh, with Jacob Collier is that they have parents in their life who, not just as a form of lip service, but, I mean, really and truly support them and encourage them to do the thing that they feel called to do. So with The Alpinist, you have this mother who, in a very kind of radical way encourages their young son to do these insane things where he risks life and limb but she clearly recognizes that this is something he one is not only talented at it's something he really feels called to do and he's not doing it for uh instagram likes you know he's not doing it for social cachet this is like a real calling this is really in the fiber of his being and when you see someone like jacob call call jacob collier although they you know, because of their success, they have many accolades and they're revered and all that sort of stuff. It's also very clear that this is just who this person is. It's something they seem to have been born to do. And so, you know, there are many of us who are born with talent or with skills or feel a calling. But if we, um, I don't want to put too much pressure on parents, although I think that that's, you know, there could be a sense in which you have very supportive parents, but society's reach uh, is so strong that uh, it doesn't matter what your parents support. Society may still sort of put you in the wrong direction. Um, but it's very rare to not have parents who are also kind of, you know, in the same cycle that I find myself in or that my friend finds themselves in, which, which is actually we don't have that insight until late in life that uh, should is a very destructive uh, ideology to be operating under. You know, because most parents, and I don't want to dismiss their their reasoning behind it. It's not because they're evil evil people. Part of it could you, could just be a very kind of practical way of getting on in the world, right? On some level, we have to make enough money to pay our bills and survive, um, and that just kind of needs to get done. So many parents, out of love and concern for their children, want to accommodate and encourage part of their desires, but also you know, feel calibrated or want their kids to calibrate themselves to some kind of compromise between what you want to do and what you should do, right? And so actually, as I said that I noticed, <laughs> I said right, which is actually a word I'm trying to delete from my vocabulary now. It's something I, I started hearing myself say when I started facilitating a lot of training, and I'm not sure where I picked it up, but ostensibly we as a society have all picked that term up because I feel like every podcast I watch now, every time there's some person bloviating in front of a microphone when they're making points, they constantly end every sentence or every point with the word right. And I'm not sure how we picked up this vocal tick, but it's something that I'm starting to notice in other people and it kind of makes my skin crawl. So um, yeah, it's something I'm trying to excise from my own vocabulary. You're going to hear me say it a thousand more times because I've been doing it for a couple years now, I find. But it's, as I heard myself say it, I wanted to uh, you know, say it and kind of hold myself accountable. Uh, but where am I going with this? I was saying something about parents wanting a compromise. And yes, it just seems to be the case, though, that there are some people who not only are bundles of talent, <laughs> but the planet seemed to have lined and they've won the cosmic lottery where they're also born into families where they have parents, uh, you know, maybe, you know, through their own disappointments or whatever, um, realize the kind of fraudulent ideology of like living uh, living under the should ideology 
and therefore can now bestow their talented children with the gift of like, go do the thing that you feel called to do. And lo and behold, when you give people permission to kind of do that thing, they accomplish incredible things, right? And I just said it again, I'm sorry. But that's one part of the story. The idea is that there, that's one part of the story is, um, and this sort of bounces off what my friend reflected, which is like, they're sick of exceptional people doing exceptional things. The truth is, most of us are not born with talents that will put us on the world stage. Or even if we do become the best in our field, success in that arena does not mean that we will have documentaries made about us or that we'll be, you know, have a YouTube audience or that we'll be rock stars or win Grammys or this type of stuff. Most of us, not because there's anything wrong with us, it's just the nature of like you know, I don't know, living in the world, is that all of our successes will happen relatively privately. They may be celebrated by our friends and family or even seen or acknowledged by them, witnessed by, you know, the most of the people with ar- within arms or reach of us. Um, you know, but our lives, we live our lives relatively unobserved and even... Uh, you know, the sco- even if we had to curate or have a kind of self-curated highlight reel of our accomplishments, you know, the scope of who those accomplishments would touch is relatively small. So, you know, I think what my friend was trying to, or was sort of thinking through at that time, is as if there was some kind of dichotomy between like having public and private success. But yeah, and I'm and now I sort of feel myself getting back to the point I was trying to make, which is when I'm watching those documentaries or watching Jacob Collier do his thing, of course I feel shamed because I I want to have the sort of public adulation or validation of my success. But what I'm really jealous of is the creative courage that they possess. You know, it's a little confused with Jacob Collier because my interest is music. Yes, I wish I had Jacob Collier's creative and musical and compositional talent. But, you know, in the case of the Alpinist or the Alpinist, when I watch that documentary, there's no part of me that wants to run to REI and get a bunch of climbing gear and start free soloing mountains. But my takeaway is that dynamic of doing the thing that you feel called to do. And you know, there's also that way in which, like, these figures, of course we're not all going to be world-famous mountain climbers or musicians, but these people are archetypes or heroes that we look to, and it's really our responsibility to kind of take those life lessons and apply them to our everyday life. You know, what would our lives look like? Uh, You know, uh, I guess I'm getting back to this idea of, like, what animates you, what gets you excited in your daily life? And I think that there is this belief, and I don't know, maybe it's naive, maybe it's privileged in a lot of ways, but there is this idea, or, you know, we have this kind of, I don't know if it's a control group or an experiment group, but we have like the Jacob Colliers or the, I'm I'm sorry, I'm forgetting this alpinist or this mountain climber's name. Um, But we have this experiment of like, if we just give uh, people permission to do the things they want to do, even if it's, you know, maybe it's education, maybe it's being a doctor, uh, it doesn't have to be some kind of creative thing. You know, if people are really and fully supported to do those things, wow, look what they accomplish. And I think, I mean, I definitely feel it in my life. You know, I feel the biggest barrier to my success, although there may be realistic or logistical or practical ones, um, the biggest barrier to my success, I feel like, has been myself. And when I talk about that, I mean, you know, I, I guess I'm also holding that alongside this idea, like, I'm also, there's a, there's, or I should say there's a, there's a, there's a part of that that's kind of can be self-destructive, you know, uh, I guess or, or what I'm saying is we can be barriers to ourselves in kind of a self-destructive way. Um, but there's also ways that we're kind of our own barriers because we just don't know what we don't know and we need to be kind of shaped by our life and our experience and, um, you know, as I'm saying this, I feel my mind kind of breaking into 10 pieces and I'm losing track of my own thinking. Um, but I guess I'm saying, I guess when I say that I've been my own 
barrier or uh, I've kind of stood in my own way. I actually don't experience myself as a self-destructive person, you know? Like, uh, I've known people who, when they see a good thing in their life, can't help but literally destroy it. And that could be the minute they're in a relationship with somebody they should be with, they go and cheat on that person. Or, um, you know, the minute they find themselves in a good job, uh, you know, they get themselves fired or something like that. And, And I'm definitely not that type of person. But I'm talking about in a sort of less public, less overt, and in a way kind of a, I don't know, kind of in a way that I think maybe a lot of us live with, but doesn't really get recognized or even criticized, and maybe even by the loved ones in our life, don't we don't get really talked out of, because it's not like overtly chaotic. It's just kind of living life with the e-brake on. And there's a, you know, like in our private moments, we feel painfully aware of our shortcomings or what we could accomplish if we could just kind of solve this one aspect of our lives. But because it doesn't look like overt failure, um, it doesn't get recognized or criticized by the people in our lives. Now, I guess the real point I'm trying to make is that type of thinking, (laughs) I actually think my therapist would think, it. actually the real Jedi perspective is it's thinking that there's something fundamentally wrong with me or that I'm standing in my way is the e-break, right? That really, and I'm sorry I said right again, but it's just, uh, you know, if I could just get over the, the belief that there's something wrong with me, then actually I would solve, whatever I think I'm trying to solve about myself would actually be solved. Um, but I, you know, maybe it's just because I'm still drinking the Kool-Aid or, or whatever, uh, you know, I, I, but I, I still feel, you know, one thing I've referenced a couple times, maybe, and I don't even know if I've talked about it on these recordings, I know I've done it in conversation with people, but, um, Truman Capote has a collection of short stories called Music, I think it's called Music for Chameleons, uh, and in the introduction, he sort of addresses his own alcoholism, and he says, something like, you know, despite all his success, and he had already written the novel In Cold Blood at this time and had won, I don't know if he won a Pulitzer Prize or whatever, but, you know, he was highly celebrated for his writing. And he said, you know, I still don't feel like I've tapped into one-third or like one-tenth of my potential. And I think that that's something that I relate to. And, um, you know, it's hard because sometimes, although whether it's my therapist or other people in my life who try to convince me that I'm okay, I do wonder sometimes if they are also operating on the same level that like when I talk about, you know, my friend who has the sort of research uh, oversight or something like that, where people are kind of pretty content to let you just do good enough for the most part. Like, for example, um, and again, as I hear myself saying this, I don't want to go into specifics, but a lot of the reason I left my last job was because I was unhappy there. And part of it was because I felt like my talents weren't really being recognized. I wasn't getting the type of responsibility that I think I not only deserved, but could have done very well with. But I also felt myself kind of holding myself to a higher standard that just kind of wasn't being met, I felt generally, um, by other people, and I was actually not being held to. And there was something kind of perpetually disappointing about just being asked and expected, well, I should say two things, one being expected, but then also asked, I felt either, you know, not necessarily overtly, but covertly, kind of being asked to kind of just do good enough in perpetuity. And I feel like part of that was predicated on the fact that that's what everybody else wanted to do. You know, nobody else wanted to, you know, I don't even want to say 110%, because that's not how I experienced it. I thought it was like, for me, the bare minimum would have looked a lot better than what, you know, we were doing for the most part. But you know, there could be this way in which, like, if if people let you do that much, then they're sort of called to kind of do more. And I know that's kind of a self-congratulatory way of looking at things, but I, I that's kind of felt true in my experience. And again, I know I, you know, my therapist is confident that I'm too hard on myself, but I'll just say empirically, maybe I'll this will get recalibrated at some point. But I feel like in my job, in my life, as I get older whether it's in academia, whether it's, you know, in my professional life, I'm actually, and sometimes I would say even in my personal life, I'm, I'm kind of constantly disappointed that I'm not being held to a higher standard. 
and by extension, that people don't hold themselves to a higher standard. And um, again, uh, it's hard to know what that calibration means exactly. Does it actually mean that people just kind of hold themselves to too low a standard? Or is it that, you know, actually things, like, I, like I'm too hard on myself? And so I don't know. I mean, I think the hardest part is when I think about my life now. You know, I've talked about, well, one, stepping away from my job feels dangerous. And I'm going to come back to that word. Um, you know, I, I'm enrolled in two classes right now that I'm taking pass, no pass. At the end of the day, I don't need to get an A in them. I, I, I mean, that's a perfect example of just needing to do good enough, right? If I get an A in the class, that's fine, but it actually has no bearing on my GPA because it's just going to go in the books as pass, no pass. So whether I get a 70% or 100% in the class, it will actually make no difference. So you could probably make the case that it would actually be uh, 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 an unwise use of my time and resources to get an A in the class. I should just do 70%. If I actually wanted to maximize and work smarter, not harder, I should really only do good enough. Um, but the idea of letting myself do that feels dangerous. You know, as I'm saying this, I realize this is probably another perfect example of how I uh, am talking about the same thing over and over again as if I'm talking about some type of new insight, but it's really the exact same thing. It's like the record just being on repeat because now I'm thinking about the analogy that I've used previously about taking the bumpers out of the bowling alley, right? There's this fundamentally dangerous idea that if I, if I let myself for a second, if I start to recalibrate and not hold myself to the same standard that I'll somehow plummet, right? And in a, and I'm sorry, I said right again. But again, it sort of says something about, I don't know if contempt is the right word, although that's the word that came to my mind, is that it also kind of betrays kind of holding the rest of the world in contempt. <laughs> like there's something uh, embarrassing about the level that the rest of the world operates, and yet I, in my own fantasy or self-imaginings, hold myself to some incredibly high standard and you know, the rest of the world is just these unwashed masses. And yet, when you objectively look at your life, you have to think, well, what's so special about you? Like, isn't it? Like, what's wrong with everybody else? So everybody else is just what? Like, half-assing it and, and you're what? And if you are so much better than everybody else, why are we all kind of in the same boat, you know? Like, it's very easy to kind of sit there with your arms folded and look at your superiors or your whatever and sort of assume that they're kind of half-assing it, but it's like, if that were, if that was really true, why are they above you? Why are you the underling? You know? Anyway, where am I going with this? I'm not sure. I think I derailed myself with that insight that I'm just kind of talking about the same shit. I felt like we had a lot of momentum there, and then I just think, well, you're just talking about the same shit. You know? But again, that's that idea of like, and I've probably talked about this before too, but like your friends and your family have a certain, uh, you know, they have a limited capacity for how many times they can hear the same story. Like if you're going through a breakup, well, first I'll start with this. We A lot of times there's this idea that your friends and family should be there for you no matter what, you know, uh, unconditional love, right? But I have this idea, I think it's it holds for family, although I think that they should probably challenge themselves to to go above and beyond. But I think it's certainly true with friends, which is they only have so much capacity to hear the same story. Like if you're going through a difficult breakup, they're happy to, oftentimes, they're very happy to be a support to you and to be available for you. But on some level, it seems to be the case that one of the defining characteristics of friendship is that it's mutually enjoyable. And although your friends are happy to sit with you and commiserate and sometimes offer their suggestions, if after a long enough period of time, you're sort of continuing to bring the same problems to them, and it's not clear to them that you're necessarily doing the things to sort of take responsibility for your own situation and like correct those things, and you're just kind of asking them to just kind of be a witness to the same pain and the same story over and over again, they get exhausted and they get tired. And, you know, they don't necessarily, may, they may not necessarily want to be your friend anymore. And, you know, for some people that may seem like a bad thing, but I, I don't know that it is. I think it's just the way things are. Um, whereas 
you know, the alternative to that is something like therapy, which is, um, you know, you're in a space, you know, a lot of people go into therapy and they think that it's going to be, you know, like your therapist is just going to like offer you solutions to your problems or like tell you what to do. Um, for the most part, I think that therapists should just kind of be content to be present and a witness for, um, whatever you want to talk about for however long you want to talk about it. And I know that there are competing theories to this, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, some somatic things that are actually very solutions oriented. And I know people who are very evangelical about those methods in some ways are actually very vocal and critical of kind of how this type of therapy operates, which is therapists who they would argue just seem content to kind of sit there and let people kind of marinate in their, whatever and like not be solutions oriented like some people think and i think even practitioners of therapy now think that like the goal of therapy should be to not need therapy on some level that despite its pretenses of being a place to kind of have unconditional positive regard for people and to hold space for people to you know to sort of meet people where they're at then on some level it needs to be solutions oriented i don't know how i feel about that i'm a little skeptical of that um, just because I have found that actually the, the best gains in therapy have come when, or I guess what I should say is one of the plot twists of therapy f for me, and I think this is what I'm talking about when I say I'm, quote, disappointed that my therapist doesn't hold me to a higher standard, is that the best gains and sometimes the best insights have come when I've challenged myself to uh, accept that dangerous idea of holding myself to a lower standard of recusing myself of the responsibility of like wearing that wool shirt or crucifying myself over some problem or, um, you know, being a perfectionist. You know, I've had some successes in my life in various fields, and it's very easy for me to assume that I've accomplished this because I'm hard on myself. But, they're, you know, the Jedi perspective could be that I'm actually succeeded in spite of that. And if I could just like take my foot off the gas and just kind of let things take their natural course or and now I'm trying to take it back to things like Jacob Collier and their creative talent if you just trust your gifts and trust the process you know and don't make this a kind of extra your 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 entire life really an exercise in perfectionism that actually you might be able to achieve a lot more um you know so sometimes I wonder, because I think a lot of these theories about like cognitive behavioral therapy, and I'm sure it's helped a lot of people and things like somatic therapies, which I'm sure have helped a lot of people. I do, those do seem to be evangelized by mostly like young people in the practice. And so again, there's this weird part too of life, which is like you have a lot of young people who are going to be therapists, but have they really been shaped by life? And Sometimes I realize some of the real Jedi-level perspectives for even mental health, people working in the mental health profession, just can't be, can't be gotten to without a certain amount of lived experience. And so, yeah, sometimes I wonder, in the same way that for someone who's been in therapy for 14 years, one of the plot twists in their own treatment has been this idea of like actually recusing yourself of finding solutions. If that people who are actually practitioners kind of need to have that kind of revelation for themselves as well. But anyway, I feel like I'm getting off track with that. And actually, honestly, I'm talking outside my depth. Um, but yeah, I think the thing I'm trying to get to for myself, again, is this, on the one hand, you know, you have this very concrete example and evidence of somebody who's able to just kind of trust their talent and kind of go with the flow, and you see what they can accomplish with it, and yet it's so hard to absorb that lesson, you know? There's still, in my own life, this, you know, fear of not doing what I should be doing, you know? And I'm sorry I'm going into this again. I, I think I brought up that whole conversation about, like, worrying about uh, belaboring people by hearing the same story over and over again is because I realize that that that's a lot of what these entries are, and uh, you know, you know, people talk about things as if they're oh, it's therapeutic or it's therapy to sort of do something like this. It's not. I mean, therapy is something that happens in 
proximity to another person. This is just uh, oration. This is just uh, something like that. But uh, there's also a way in which having these conversations is helpful for me. But um, yeah, I just had a brain fart. I'm not sure what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, it's ironic. I'm talking about how helpful this is. And uh, I've just sort of run into a wall here. Um, talking about the same thing over and over again. Oh, uh, I was about to launch into something I know I'm, I've talked about, which is, you know, not just leaving my job, but I'm also in this place now where I'm really reconsidering applying to grad school. And I'm kind of in this, I don't want to use the word dangerous again, but I'm kind of at this kind of critical moment where I actually really need to make a decision, at least in part. There are a couple programs I can apply to that I actually don't have to think about for another month or two. But I've talked about this Fulbright scholarship that um, I've kind of been thinking about. And the deadline for that is coming up. And not only is the deadline coming up, but it actually requires me to get the, the help of a few other people. And so if that's going to happen, I kind of need to reach out to them now. But, you know, I'm also really sitting with and reconsidering whether that's an opportunity I really want to pursue. Um, I'm sort of really leaning on this kind of logistical and important piece. Um which is that my language skills just may not be right now where they need to be or may not be where they need to be by the time I would enter this program um, to really do it. And so that's something to consider seriously. But at the end of the day, my biggest gripes are I don't really like the location, you know? Um, I don't really like where the school is. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's not where I would like to be living. And I have a lot of ambivalence about that. So, you know, but again... Uh, the thing I kind of sit with is I kind of diminish that in favor. You know, I'm very, I, I feel very grateful to have this practical thing I can point to other people or excuse is how I th frame it, which is, oh, my language skills are just not, not where they need to be. But it's, I guess what I'm saying is it should just be enough that I don't want to, right? But I feel shackled or tethered to this thing because I should want it, right? It's Fulbright. It's very prestigious, it's something that uh, is highly competitive that a lot of people want that would look great on a resume. And you know, I, I'm not necessarily sure who, but the idea is that this is something that would impress people. And so I tell myself, well, you should deprecate what you want to do. And yeah, even if you're there and you don't like the location, you should just do it because that's what life is. It's a lot of doing things you don't want to do because of the benefits that you'll potentially gain from it. But at the end of the day, I don't really want it. And so I'm kind of at this point where I'm kind of seeing that ship sail. And on the one hand, I'm trying to encourage myself to like be okay with that because this is not something that I want. But I also feel a little guilty about that. It feels dangerous. And when I see myself doing things like leaving my job and actually recusing myself for the responsibility of applying to grad school and just kind of playing it by ear and going to Taiwan in the spring and seeing how that goes, you know, I feel myself kind of stepping off the treadmill that I've been on for the last, well, almost four and a half, well, four years now, four and a half years by the time I graduate, this thing that has looked like progress to a lot of people and is actually the type of momentum and progress that I think a lot of people in my life have wanted for me for a long time. And I've been really happy with a lot of that. It's been great. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that, that, I, that I haven't wanted that for myself as well, but kind of being at this new point where I'm kind of wanting to hit the pause button and kind of recalibrate, reevaluate that, you know, that feels scary for me. You know, I go back to that idea of like, you know, on the one hand, I feel, I feel like I'm preparing to kind of make a bet, which is if I actually, you know, if I actually allow myself to do that, I bet I'll actually go a lot further. Meaning, you know, creating that space for myself will help facilitate, you know, or I guess maybe another way to say this is I'm on the cusp of making a very important decision. Uh, it doesn't mean that whatever I choose that my life is going to be destroyed or succeed on the basis of this one decision, but that the next two to five years of my life could could look very different based on the decision I'm about to make. And 
I'm hoping that if I give myself to just kind of really evaluate and think about what I want to do, that I can make the best decision for me. Maybe not something that looks that makes sense to other people, but that I'll be able to look back on in five years and say, good on you, man. Right. So I'm trying to tie this back to the other thing, which is although we look at documentaries like The Alpinist and Jacob Collier, and those are very public facing successes um, that almost anyone can look to and say, yeah, that's success. The lesson that we need to take from that is a type of, I say creative because that's the way I think of it, but a type of self-belief and confidence um, uh, into our personal lives that will have to be in the service of successes that we probably won't have the chance to show many people. You know, but, but again, the sustaining component will be that thing that we get excited about. Do you know what I mean? So again, I feel very embarrassed and I'm not quite sure. Actually, I was about to say I'm not quite sure what it is. At the end of the day, the only thing I know is that I want to return to Taiwan, that I want to continue my language study in the spring. I have some ideas. You know, Maybe I'll enter a master's program for Chinese language and culture. Uh, maybe after that, I'll enter maybe a doctorate program for Eastern philosophy in Taiwan. Those seem like things that I could do. You know, I'm not pot committed to that, but when I just sort of sit and I don't consider what other people might want from me or what makes sense or whatever, that feels like, oh, I could do that. And so I feel like I should just be okay with that. Of course, there are people in my life who want to know where all that's going. And I, I well, for example, I had a conversation with another friend of mine, um, um, who was just kind of asking me, like, well, hey, well, what do you want to do after you graduate from school? Or if you went did X, Y, or Z program, like, why would you do that? And the baked-in thing is, like, well, what job would that lead to? And I feel very embarrassed and insecure that I don't know. I mean, it's very easy to, to kind of fake it and say, well, I could be a professor. But anyone who knows anything about the state of the job market in academia is that there are way more qualified applicants than positions, and although I'm a student at a very esteemed institute and I'm surrounded by tenured professors who, again, I'm not sure it would make me happy, but have the type of careers that look like success to other people, I've also had those professors tell me, if you're going into this hoping that your career matches mine, you know, that's that's going to be hard. <laughs> There's just not a lot of, you know, it, 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 even they recognize that they kind of won the lottery, you know, and also they got into this at a very different time uh the market looked the, you know the job market looked very different when they sort of entered academia but yes i guess uh, the point i'm just trying to make is this like yeah i actually don't know you know i can only see a couple moves i'm i i feel like uh, although i want to be playing chess and other people pretend to be playing chess it looks like to me i'm kind of over here playing checkers i really can only see a move or two ahead and you know, I'm not sure if it's uh, brilliant on my part to be making decisions based on that or if it's, uh, you know, if I'm ultimately uh, delusional and will live to regret, um, you know, making important decisions predicated on small amounts of information. Although I'm also, um, you know, my therapist's voice is jumping into my head now and saying that I'm actually doing myself a disservice. <laughs> That's one of the ways I do myself a disservice by framing things that way, which is, you know, it's very easy for me to to say that I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's not like I haven't done any research. It's not like I haven't been to Taiwan. Um, you know, it's not like I'm saying I want to move to, uh, you know, some faraway place I've never been to and just kind of join a monastery. And I really have no idea what I'm getting into, you know, it's very likely that uh, I feel uh, inclined or want to do these things based on my experience. So I guess I do have to give myself some credit where credit is due. Yeah. Otherwise, um, yeah, I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed to find myself kind of in the routine that I have been, you know, um, I'm sort of, yeah. On the one hand, I'm talking about being okay with letting myself do less, but I have to be honest, there's part of it I think is seasonal, part of it I think is 
uh, probably because of the types of anxieties that I've talked about. But I think I've kind of let myself chill a little more than I should this last week and a half. Um, you know, not working has been a little bit hard, you know, for better or worse. I just kind of have felt a little kind of down the dumps. But at the end of the day, there are things that need my attention. One of those is this honors thesis that I'm uh, have uh, supposed to be working on for uh, a semester now. And although I kind of did some work on it last semester, uh, I did have not done nearly as much as I should have, especially considering that these two semesters kind of straddle the summer. And uh, although I knew that I wasn't going to be looking at it because of my time abroad, um, I'm definitely not as far along in it as I should be for someone who not only had all of last semester, but essentially the summer, if they wanted to, to work on their honors thesis. So, uh, I mean, I haven't even looked at it since the semester started. And uh, although I've met with my advisor and kind of talked to them a little bit, uh, if this thing is going to get done, I really kind of need to put the pedal to the metal, right? Which is a... Uh, a phrase I actually taught someone recently, <laughs> pedal to the metal. So I need to put the pedal to the metal and get serious about this. So uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. I keep telling myself every day, like, hey, you should look at that thing. And I don't do that thing. I do other things. So, and even then, I don't do as much as I should be doing. I'm really kind of overwhelmed with the amount of reading and uh, other things I have to do for homework this semester. But again, I really need to be more generous with myself and let some things slide. You know, I have these two classes. Uh, I have a history class and a political science class that the reading is just exorbitant. But at the end of the day, I just need to tell myself, you actually don't need to do all of it. You know, you just need to do enough to get by. Although I'll say this, and this may be the last thing I have time for, even though it's not very exciting to me, it may be the last thing I have time for. I did have a quiz in political science. Uh, in, uh, it was an in-class quiz, and it was five minutes long. We had to do it online. This is actually a course that, although there is a lecture, it's done asynchronously, um, but you have to be present for it, if that makes sense. So the, the professor, understandably, lives with some type of um, compromised immune system, and so they actually can't lecture in person, so they do it remotely. Uh, but that lecture happens at a scheduled time that we have to be present for. Even though we're all connecting remotely, we have to be present for it. So there was a in-lecture quiz that we had five minutes for. We had to click online and do it. And it was five questions. And leading up to the quiz, we were told this will be very easy, you know, for anyone who's just kind of been uh, kind of half paying attention in lecture and completing the reading should do just fine. And uh, I've done more than that. I mean, I've gone to... Every lecture, I've done all of the reading, I've done all the homework, I've been to every discussion group that we've had, and I got one out of five. And I've had this kind of horrible experience that uh, maybe other people who've done, I've actually seen it in meetings too, so even if you're a professional and you've, in this post-pandemic world, have attended meetings, is that I find the chat has actually been very distracting. It's this kind of new part of this world we live in, which is concurrent with whatever sort of audio conversations taking place, the actual meeting that we're all here for, is that often there's these kind of side chats and discussion, or, or I should say side discussions in the chat that's taking place. And so I was obviously very surprised with my score. I mean, the questions were, uh, as soon as I saw the questions, I realized, well, this is we're in entirely different territory than I expected us that we would be. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but I had uh, just looking at my notes and having been present, uh, it was very clear. It seemed very intuitive to me the types of questions that would be on this quiz, and, and the quiz was not that at all. Uh, so I was not surprised at all as someone who's been present for all this stuff to imagine that uh, people who hadn't been present were certainly screwed. And of course, when we come back to the chat, I see all these, or sorry, back to the uh, lecture I see just, you know, there's a few hundred people in this class. I just see hundreds of comments of people going like, oh, that quiz was so unfair, and we should, one, we should have had more time, but also, oh, the questions weren't fair. And while I sympathize with that, um, yeah, I sort of started having this kind of fantastical conversation in my head, like, if I had to articulate why I was disappointed in that quiz, and I've had this in other, you know, since returning to school, which is the teacher can quiz on whatever they want. Right? It's not about fairness. If you have a textbook or a lecture, um, 
I guess what I'm saying is, although those were not intuitive questions at all, and didn't at all address the broad strokes of the types of things that I think, if you wanted to assess if somebody had been listening even passively to your lectures or completing their reading, those are not at all the questions I would have chosen. But I have no doubt that the answers to those questions are in the text that we read, are in the lecture notes that we've ostensibly taken. So they're fair game. You know, I'm I'm also very disappointed with how I did. And uh, But at the end of the day, it's not that it's not fair. It's just not what we would have done. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, I, I, know, I don't know what I'm sort of trying to say about that, except it's an interesting distinction that I draw oftentimes, which is although I share people's criticism, I just sort of frame them a little bit differently. You know, it's not that it's not fair. It's just not how I would have done things. Anyway. Even I felt underwhelmed by the point that I arrived at with that one. So what do we do, right? We have about, oh, I don't know, maybe five minutes left with each other. So what is there to talk about? Yeah, maybe not much. Maybe just recapitulate. Um, I have to admit, I know I was a little late uh, with last week's entry, and even sitting down to record this one, uh, which will be out in time. I'm sort of doing what I'm supposed to. You know, not sure if I should be tilting my hand this way, but I, you know, I, speaking of things that excite us, um, I admit that I sort of jumped back into this thing a little arbitrarily, and I think I was kind of moved to do it in the moment, but um, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, you know, I guess even with this personal journal that I'm keeping here, I'm always happy to have done it. Right? It's a bit like working out, which is, um, excuse me, it's hard to kind of get up and, and going, but once I do it, I'm always happy to have done it. So I'm very happy to be here, but I guess I'm also considering, although I've started to do this thing, there is a should component, which is now that I've started it, I feel like I just have to do a hundred, a hundred more entries because that's what the last one was. So there is a should component, but you know, Apropos of nothing, if I really had to evaluate my enthusiasm, you know, is this something that lights me up? Is this something that I get excited by? Yeah, I'm not sure. So I don't know what that means exactly, except I plan to sort of keep on the schedule that I am on, and uh, I still kind of feel committed to this process, but it's a qualified commitment, I'll say. So I guess I'm not sure what I'm saying, except... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there will be a week here where I decide not to do one, or maybe I sort of uh, change the schedule. I'm not sure. But uh, I guess we'll just sort of, we'll both have to kind of see how that plays out. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I could stall here for a couple more minutes, but, um, <laughs> well, maybe one way to sort of close the gap is um, I've had a couple times in therapy. First of all, therapy is not an hour. It's 50 minutes, right? So that's one. That's just one thing to keep in mind. But I have had a couple times where I feel like with my therapist, I'll arrive at like a point or we'll kind of reach the end of a thought. And I may have in the, you know, 12 years or whatever I've been in therapy, I think I've only done this about half a dozen times. But I will say, well, yeah, I know we have a little more time here, but I'm not really sure that anything's coming up. And uh, parenthetically, I don't say this out loud, but I think this is also my time and I'm paying for it and I can use it however I want. Why don't we just say goodbye here and pick this up next week? So um, having said that, I think I got myself to the finish line as we normally would. But um, I'll just echo that sentiment, which is I think we've reached a fine place. Maybe not fireworks and... Uh, Maybe not. Uh, maybe no epiphanies reached, but uh, at least I've done good enough, which is exactly what it'll have to be this week. So, um, yeah, I'll just say good enough. And um, yeah, not quite sure what else to say except thank you for listening. Thank you for your time, and ciao for now. <laughs>